Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 147, Valley Forge. Valley Forge is a location in Pennsylvania, around 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia. It was a terrible location to set up camp. There was little food nearby, foraging parties were unable to find anything, it was a difficult location for the state to supply, and local merchants preferred to sell their food to the British, who paid with hard currency, instead of the paper money being produced by the Continental Congress. The army had little food or clothes, and spent the winter sheltering in crude huts. Many regiments deserted. I'm now going to quote in full a letter sent from Washington to the Convention of New Hampshire, which I hope captures the situation better than my own words would be able to. Quote, Headquarters, Valley Forge, December 29th, 1777. Gentlemen, I take the liberty of transmitting you the enclosed return, which contains a state of the New Hampshire regiments. By this, you will discover how deficient how exceedingly short they are of the complement of men which, of right according to the establishment, they ought to have. This information, I have thought it my duty to lay before you, that it may have attention which its importance demands, and, in full hope, that the most early and vigorous measures will be adopted, not only to make the regiments more respectable, but complete. The necessity and expedience of this procedure are too obvious to need arguments. Should we have a respectable force to commence an early campaign with, before the enemy are reinforced, I trust we shall have an opportunity of striking a favourable and a happy stroke. But, if we should be obliged to defer it, it will not be easy to describe with any degree of precision what disagreeable consequences may result from it we may rest assured that Britain will strain every nerve to send from home and abroad, as early as possible, all troops it shall be in her power to raise or procure. Her views and schemes for subjugating these states, and bringing them under her despotic rule, will be unceasing and unremitting. Nor should we, in my opinion, turn our expectations to, or have the least dependence on, the intervention of a foreign war. Our wishes on this head have been disappointed hitherto, and perhaps it may longer be the case. However, be this as it may, our reliance should be wholly on our own strength and exertions. If in addition to these, there should be aid derived from a war between the enemy and any of the European powers, our situation will be so much the better. If not, our efforts and exertions will have been the more necessary and indispensable. For my own part, I should be happy if the idea of a foreign rupture should be thrown entirely out of our state of politics, that it may not have the least weight in our public measures. No bad effects could flow from it, but on the contrary, many of a salutary nature. At the same time, I do not mean that such an idea ought to be discouraged among the people at large, because the event is probable. There is one thing more to which I would take the liberty of soliciting your most serious and constant attention, to wit, the clothing of your troops, 
and the procuring of every possible supply in your power from time to time for that end. If the several states exert themselves in future in this instance, and I think they will, I hope that the supplies they will be able to furnish in aid of those which Congress may immediately import themselves will be equal and competent to every demand. If they do not, I fear, I am satisfied the troops will never be in a situation to answer the public expectation and perform the duties required of them. No pains, no efforts on the part of the states can be too great in this purpose. It is not easy to give you a just and accurate idea of the sufferings of the army at large, of the loss of men on this account. Were they to be minutely detailed, your feelings would be wounded and the relation would probably not be received without a degree of doubt and discredit. We had in camp, on the 23rd instant, by a field return then taken, not less than 2,898 men unfit for duty, by reason of their being barefoot and otherwise naked. Beside this number, sufficiently distressing of itself, there were many others detained in hospitals and crowded in farmers' houses for the same causes. In a most particular manner, the I flatter myself the care and attention of the states will be directed to supply of shoes, stockings and blankets, as their expenditure from the common operations and accidents of war is far greater than of any other articles. In a word, the united and respective exertions of the states cannot be too great, too vigorous in this interesting work, and we shall never have a fair and just prospect for success till our troops, officers and men, are better appointed and provided than they are or have been. We have taken post here for the winter as a place best calculated to cover the country from the ravages of the enemy and are now busily employed in erecting huts for the troops. This circumstance renders it the more material that the supplies should be greater and more immediate than if the men were in comfortable quarters. Before I conclude, I would also add that it will be essential to inoculate the recruits or levies as fast as they are raised that their earliest services may be had. Should this be postponed, the work will be to do most probably at an interesting and critical period, and when their aid may be materially wanted. I have the honour to be with great respect to gentlemen, your most obedient servant, George Washington. End quote. In combination with these difficulties, Washington also had political problems. He was criticised for his defeats at Brandywine and Germantown, and for his failure to hold on to Philadelphia. He was sharply criticised by an Irish officer serving with the French army, Thomas Conway, who proposed that Horatio Gates replace Washington as commander-in-chief. Washington's friend, John Cadwalder, ended up fighting a duel with Conway. There are rumours that senior figures in the Patriot Commander were growing tired of Washington, including Benjamin Franklin, Samuel Adams and Richard Henry Lee, although it's difficult to take these rumours too seriously. Washington's position doesn't seem to have been seriously questioned, but the Americans were certainly in a dicey situation. In contrast, the British appeared to be having quite a comfortable winter in Philadelphia, albeit one that also had a degree of political uncertainty. The root cause was a breakdown in the alliance between the colonial secretary, Germain, and the Howe brothers. 
They had worked together quite closely, but concerned about potential Patriot victories in 1777, and wanting to avoid any blame for failures, Germain had started to distance himself from the Howes, even hiring pens to attack them in the press. Sir William Howe found this situation untenable, and he was concerned about the situation in Philadelphia itself, where the loyalist reaction he had been hoping for was muted. Howe decided to offer his resignation to Lord North. In effect, he was telling the Prime Minister that somebody had to go. It was either him or Germain. North didn't want Howe to leave. The only way he would allow it was if our old friend, Geoffrey Amherst, returned to North America, and there was no way he was doing that. After much deliberation, North and George III decided they needed to support Germain, and on the 4th of February, 1778, Germain wrote to the Howe brothers to tell them they were free to return to England, and that command would be taken over by Sir Henry Clinton. Howe was widely criticised at the time. The Patriots had obvious reasons to dislike him, and there was of course a degree of exaggeration going on, but a particular criticism was his treatment of American prisoners. Lacking space to securely house prisoners of war, Howe ended up storing them on ships in New York Harbour in poor conditions. Were the conditions terrible? Yes. Were they out of the ordinary for the 18th century? Well, not really. Howe certainly neglected to make sure that the prisoners were decently treated, as did many of his contemporaries. Not that this absolves him for their actions. Interestingly, he was also criticised in Britain for incompetence. The following is an abstract from a January 1777 treaty of the Middlesex Journal, quote, When Rome was urged by adverse fate on Canai's evil day, a Fabius saved the sinking state by caution and delay. Only one state replied a smart, why talk of such a dunce, when Billy Howe, by the same art, can save thirteen at once. End quote. This basic theme, that Howe saved the Americans multiple times through excessive caution, was expanded by Thomas Jones, a loyalist, in his History of New York during the Revolutionary War. It was written between 1783 and 1788, although the manuscript wasn't published until 1879. Jones identifies numerous times when Howe could have delivered a blow to the American war effort, such as when Washington escaped Long Island and Manhattan. It's an interesting take, but I wouldn't go as far as Jones does, such as claiming that the British could have crushed the revolution in 1776 and blaming Howe's inaction on licentiousness and a fondness for gambling. But I do think that Howe was excessively cautious, and must be considered a failure as commander-in-chief. I would largely agree with John Alden, who says the following in his A History of the American Revolution, Britain and the Loss of the Thirteen Colonies, quote, Sir William never lost a battle in which he personally directed the royal troops. He won a series of victories over Washington, he gained little profit from his triumphs in the field. It may be said that he was not fortunate. It may be emphasised that his tasks were not easy ones. 
His deliberate and careful movements, intended to secure great advantages at little risk and small cost, may be censured. But it is interesting that Germain, as late as January 1707, endorsed Howe's cautious manoeuvres. They were consistent, it may be added, with the principles of warfare, at least with British principles of warfare, in the 18th century. British armies did not then move swiftly or audaciously. When Howe did take chances before Trenton and Germantown, he paid for his temerity by defeat and near defeat. Had he moved with the celerity demanded by many of his critics, some of them may have urged that he should have kept or taken the field in the midst of harsh northern winters, he might have accomplished more than he did. He might also have encountered a check at the hands of the Patriots more serious than inflicted upon the royal troops at Trenton. Usually conventional and cautious in things military, Howe was not fitted for command in a most unconventional and unusual war. He lacked intellect. He had failed to fulfil the promise of his youth. As a young man, he performed splendidly under direction. In his middle age, he would have been a brace and useful colonel. But he would not have performed well as a general, even in traditional European warfare. Not the least of his errors was his decision, careless, even though approved by Lord George Germain, to go off to Philadelphia in the summer of 1777, without providing for the safety of the army advancing from Canada. To be sure, that army was not under his control, but Howe played a principal part in designing a British disaster. End quote. And so it is to that disaster that we turn next time, as we catch up with the General John Burgoyne, the Army of Canada, and the events that were about to transpire at Saratoga. Thanks for listening, I'll see you then.